Eddie Van Halen passed away this week, and it has left a hole in the music world. I myself reacted to the news of his passing like I was hit by a Mack truck, stunned and saddened. Even though he left a treasure trove of music, and even though the legacy of Van Halen and the legacy of Eddie as a guitar player will only grow exponentially from here on in, I still feel we weren't able to get a true sense of his musicianship. His guitar playing didn't reinvent guitar because, let's face it, nobody could even come close to duplicating what he brought forth. But it did ignite a whole generation of guitar players to try and aspire to be like him. Nobody came close, but it was fun to hear them try. I think what Eddie did with the guitar was show the world how rock guitar can be done in the hands of a true master musician, a true genius. But it's no secret Eddie's output was fairly small compared to what he actually privately recorded, and I can only longingly guess as to what lies on the shelves of his 5150 home studio archives. There are many stories, there are many myths, legends, rumors that surround Eddie Van Halen and the music he made that go beyond the cute go-to songs like Jump or When It's Love. So, Since I'm on a bit of a break with the podcast and uploading old episodes weekly, I thought I'd bring this one back. This is an episode with Ian Christie, originally from 2015, episode 114. Ian is the owner of the Bazillion Points publishing company that have put out books like Murder in the Front Row, the Harold Oyman Brian Liu photo book, Misery Obscura, the Erie Vaughn photo book, More Fun in the New World, the John Doe book, Dirty Deeds, the Mark Evans bio, Only Death is Real, the Celtic Frost book, My Damage, the Keith Morris autobiography, and on and on. He is also the author of Everybody Wants Some, the biography on Van Halen. And all this is stated on the podcast you're about to hear. But I did want to mention it here again that my post-teen re-obsession with Eddie Van Halen came about six or seven years ago, and I will always believe there was a John Cage, Glenn Gould, Stephen Reich, Glenn Branca-type musician wanting to, dying to, get out to show everyone how it was done and to let his freak flag fly. But now, we'll never know. This episode with Ian Christie explores that idea about Eddie Van Halen. I hope you enjoy it. Rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. The Tango Joe's Pockets is the best around Nick Flynn again is Tango's Go out to love for free I'm sad glad I like to sometimes Jimmy in from Fuck Joe Stop playing Hang Joe Joe All credit goes to Eddie Van Halen For making me want to pick up a guitar in the first place Mainly hearing Eruption Me and a hundred million other kids When it came to vocal performance and lyrics David Lee Roth has always been a huge inspiration And influence on me as well His laid-back vaudevillian approach to heavy music has remained solitary in a sea of wannabes. In fact, it has been Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth that inspired a generation on two fronts. However, let the record show, no band in rock and roll has ever been accused of sounding like Van Halen, mainly because it's too damn difficult to even try. For as much of a unique act with exemplary musicianship and showmanship the Van Halen band brought to popular music, I'm also quite aware of the negative image they are culpable in crafting. 
one that has left them branded as hamburger rock, music for the masses, devoid of depth and intellect. Hasty verdicts, most definitely, but one can be easily forgiven for jumping to the conclusion. I think Van Halen's omission from a lot of people's frontal lobes lies with the unfortunate stigma they've received due to their careless handling of their own legacy, one that has been fraught with tiresome drama. Another point that might be worth noting is Van Halen reached their highest peaks during the 80s, a decade that a lot of rock and rollers often disregard while focusing on other decades like the 60s with MC5 and the Stooges, the 70s with Zeppelin, Sabbath, and Kiss, and the 90s with Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. But I think it's safe to say most will concede to Eddie Van Halen being a musical genius. However, few know about Eddie's other musical side, even those who consider themselves superfans. What started as an innocent inquiry quickly turned into an obsession, and I have become obsessed with this other side of Eddie Van Halen, a side he keeps hidden away from the world. I was recently cleaning out my place, going through old magazines and books, when I stumbled on an old issue of Classic Rock Magazine, April 2011 to be exact. It was an article by John Scanlon about the making of their classic 1984 album. In anticipation of the then-soon-to-be-released David Lee Roth reunion record, a different kind of truth. Rereading it to reacquaint myself with one of my favorite bands, it was a single paragraph describing an event in Eddie Van Halen's life that sent me on a tailspin. The year was 1983. Eddie and his wife, TV actress Valerie Bertinelli, had rented out composer Marvin Hamlish's summer house. Hamlish was best known for scoring films and writing somewhat schmaltzy love songs. And what seemingly appeared to be out of character, Eddie took a chainsaw to Hamlish's piano and recorded the destructive John Cage-like noise. No one knows for sure how much was recorded, but a minute and a half was finally released onto the Balance Van Halen album in 1995. What this supposed non-event uncovered and confirmed for me was something that I had always felt. Eddie Van Halen serves two masters, and because of it, is forever tortured. Here's this guy, a huge rock guitar star, a symbol of virtuosity and excess, but one who considers the piano to be his main instrument. Famous for party rock riffs within a formulaic mold, but deep down dwells an experimental, avant-garde, unconventional side to him. How can a musical genius like Eddie Van Halen not want to spread his wings? But by obviously choosing one over the other, like a pressure cooker waiting to pop, something had to give. One can lay blame on Ed's well-documented addictions and questionable decisions. In the end, the answer is simple. One cannot contain a musical genius like Eddie Van Halen to only sentimental love ballads like When It's Love, Love Walks In, and Can't Stop Loving You. My heart jumped at this realization, but I had nobody to share it with. Too many had already formed their hardline opinion on the band, and that was that. But then I remembered Ian Christie, podcast episode guest number 72, 
owner of one of my favorite imprints, Bazillion Points, and author of Everybody Wants Some, one of the first, if not the first, complete biography on Van Halen. Ian would be the great expert that I could bounce my thoughts and ideas on the band off of and see where I stood. I took advantage of my easy access and sent Ian an email inviting him onto the podcast to talk about Van Halen via Skype. He replied saying that he could actually do the podcast in person at one of our upcoming Swiss shows since he had moved bazillion points from Brooklyn, New York to Switzerland. A chance to finally meet Ian and sit down to talk about Van Halen, our shared obsession, was something I was going to make sure happened. If you are unfamiliar with Ian's book company, Bazillion Points, go to bazillionpoints.com, and there you will find some of the best books on underground music and culture. Some of the books he's released, like Experiencing Nirvana by Bruce Pavitt, and Murder in the Front Row by Harold Oyman and Brian Liu have been featured on this podcast before, episode number 67 and episode number 48, respectively. There's also Only Death is Real, the book on Celtic Frost, City Baby by Ross Lomas of GBH, NYHC on New York Hardcore from 1980 to 1990 by Tony Rettman, and Sheriff McCoy, the autobiography of Hanoi Rock's guitarist Andy McCoy, to name just a few titles. On this day, in the big, cavernous, echoey hall of the Kaufmel in Solitern, Switzerland, our talk revolved around Van Halen, specifically Eddie Van Halen. I know there's been enough talk about Eddie Van Halen, but in my estimation, it's only scratched the surface. Hopefully, this podcast episode with Ian Christie strips a layer off of rock and roll's greatest enigma, wrapped in red, black, and white stripes, surrounded by an eternal finger tap. Thanks to Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to those for leaving a rating and or a review on iTunes. Thank you so much. Ian Christie is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. It's better get his Danko school hotel for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from fucked up. Stop playing. I got to know Danko a few years ago when I used my vacation time to follow the band on the road. And I even spent a day with Danko in some European town that escapes me. But we ended up talking about 17th century art, his pet rock collection, <laughs> the summers he spent as a teenage air traffic controller, his venomous snake collection, his passion for planking, and the night he spent with Ringo Starr's housekeeper. He's a fascinating character with a wealth of stories to share. And I'm a huge fan of Danko, but a bigger fan of his stories. to 
have you here in Switzerland, Solitern. Uh, I couldn't believe, we were going to do this on Skype, and then I reached out to you and you said, hey, I'll meet you on the 18th. I didn't, I thought you were in Brooklyn. I said, well, you know, I figured the sound quality is so much better in person. We can't do the Skype thing anymore. I'll just take the bazillion points jet to Switzerland and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's actually the bazillion points jet is kind of a raft I made out of sticks from the forest. Well, but yeah, I left Brooklyn after being there for a quarter century just to change. You know, the the New York that I moved there for is doesn't exist anymore. So it's a nice place to visit now. And I mean, bazillion points is still happening. It's still vibrant and working. And yeah, the part of what happened is uh, we outgrew. Uh, we outgrew the circumstances, you know. We, Bazillion Points was made in a Brooklyn that was uh, easy to get cheap space in. Um, there were lots of, like, unused buildings. And I was in an old pencil factory for 10 years. I wrote the Van, that Van Halen book. I, it was the first thing I did there, and then putting on everything we did. But I could never really store the books there. They were spread out all over. Now we have a professional warehouse in Chicago that sends everything out. And... Um, I'm not unloading the trucks physically myself anymore, but the idea is to be able to put out more books this way. And so far, that's going completely, that's going great. That's great. I mean, uh, it works for me. I mean, I, I was all willing to do this through Skype, and the reason why I reached out to you for the second time was um, I became obsessed with Van Halen. Now, I've always loved Van Halen since I was 10 or 11. I I know them backwards and forwards. But I recently read um, an article, an old classic rock article, uh, classic rock magazine from 2011. I was just just cleaning out stuff, and I found the mag. And I read the the, uh, cover story, and there's one paragraph that just I, I, I got obsessed over, and it was in 83... Eddie Van Halen rented out Marvin Hamlish's uh, summer home with Valerie Bertinelli, and he chainsawed his piano and recorded it all. And all the recordings are still existing. He made enough to make a few records. They're all in storage somewhere at 5150. And then in 95, he put out a minute and a half of right. it called Strung Out on the Balance album. Yeah. It's just a it's about a one minute intro and it sounds you know it sounds like a John Cage record. Exactly. He's got this John these John Cage recordings somewhere stored and he's not gonna put it out and that's all we got from him. It's it's coins on piano strings. I guess this house was entirely white inside. So he rented it out for the summer and I think it's I think it's a beach you know, I mean, Marvin Hamlish is one of these guys that his name, you know, in the 70s, he was like on The Muppet Show and he wrote some songs. And evidently, those songs are enough to get you a beachfront house in Los Angeles with a white piano, you yeah. know? And everything in this house was white, and the, Van, the power couple of Eddie Van Halen and Valerie show up, and, uh, you know, mayhem ensues. Right. But that was, that was right around the time that Eddie built his studio. That, they, that he himself recorded 1984 in. I mean, you know, people complain that today you don't get the big studio treatment and you just, uh, um, you know, too many bedroom recordings going around. Or, or maybe that's a revolution. People don't even complain. It's, yeah. it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, he, that's, that's what Eddie Van Halen did. And it, I think the, the schism with that led to the breakup was one of the factors that led to the split with Roth was all of a sudden Eddie became a power player in his band. Yeah. And the creative 
the creative uh, um, dividend of that for us should have been hundreds of Eddie Van Halen recordings and albums, and he has he was in there for 10, 20 years recording with with record pushed daily, doing experiments, writing songs, and we've heard. I don't know, two to three percent of it, maybe. And um, I, you know, when I when I heard about that out, like that strung out one minute, a minute and a half from those recordings, I started to get really, really excited, and I realized that Eddie Van Halen is a tortured genius, putting out. One half of them is putting out what he likes, genuinely likes. I'm sure he likes this rock and roll he makes what I would maybe term hamburger rock, you know, with <laughs> Sammy Hagar and, and Roth and all this stuff. But there's another, there's another side to him that, that isn't getting served, um, which is this kind of classically trained, uh, avant-garde, crazy experimental genius that he has put under the carpet, like he's just swept it under the carpet. Do you agree with that? Um, I, I, I'm not, you know, fully ready to give him the Nobel Prize yet because we don't know what, what all these recordings are. It could, it could really be hundreds of days worth of stone, totally stoned ramblings. But um, I, I do think, I think that his musical talent is, you know, he already changed the world, right? He changed the world of what you just called hamburger rock completely. He basically put. 95% of anyone doing that type of music pre-1978 out of business yeah. and then enabled like a whole new generation of, of, of Van, Ham, Van Halen emulators. Yeah. Uh, every, pretty much every band from Hollywood in the 80s that wasn't a Hanoi Rocks ripoff was a Eddie Van Halen clone. You're right, you're right. And, uh, but he did that so early. He did that in like 1978. So then what? Well. You start to hear these crazy things, like there's that song "Loss of Control," that's just like a herky-jerky breakdown. Um, he stops. He stops talking about being into Cream and Black Sabbath uh, right around like 1980 or 81, and things start to get deeper musically with with Fair Warning. And I have heard a bunch of demos for Fair Warning that have. Um, like there's a horn section version of Mean Street, I think, with it. It was like a vampy ending. It, it just kicks out for for like an extra three minutes or something. There's there was a lot of experimentation going on even then. But he started talking about you know being into guys like Alan Holdsworth and uh, there was a prog band that he was way into called I think Brand X. Oh. A 70s prog band. I want to make sure I'm not con confusing with the SST band Hotel X or with the Paul Gilbert band Racer X, but it, you know it's just super prog fusion. And um, maybe he would have gone in that direction, but you know, or he could have been like a Robert Fripp type of person that had a scaled down career later in life. But this Eddie Van Halen basically took the biggest payout there is if you're going to be a sellout, yeah. right, and just play this just make a stadium rock there's no higher price you know he took he took the he took the biggest payout to do that and maybe he sold his soul but he did he sold his soul for unimaginable success yeah, it wasn't like he just kind of gimped it out a little bit and why would you bother doing that it was really like 
superstardom, treated like a god, treated like a, yeah. you know, a, an actual People magazine type of celebrity. And then when you, you know, um, read about, obviously from you, uh, the history of the Van Halen family and the, the, how they struggled, with that history, that background, you're going to take the payout. So I don't want to call Eddie Van Halen a sellout. I want to call him just a, pro, a, a result of his background and his history. He came, he came from, you know, poor background. And when you're met with, like, untold riches, you're going to take it. Who cares about these, like, you know, uh, you know excursions into experiment, experimental music? And, and I think probably... The, the bigger Van Halen got, the more he was around, like the guys from Chicago and the guys from Foreigner. He wasn't around people who were like, hey, why don't you go on a club tour uh, destroying pianos? <laughs> you know, there, would have been, there was no angle in that. But I find it, there's something about him that I can identify with on that level uh -huh. because I love... I love, I'm in a rock band, you play rock and roll? straight up rock and roll, black and white rock and roll, it's just pretty much meat and potatoes rock. Right. Um, so I know that side, but you know, I've got John Cage records, I've got, you know, like Boredom's records, so I know that that's a side that exists in Eddie Van Halen's mind, and just knowing that that side exists is very comforting to me. It, it, for some reason, when I read that paragraph, I was like, oh, my God, like, the guy who invented all this shit that I loved when uh, I was 14, at the same time, had this whole other side that nobody even knows. And he could probably, if left to his own devices, outdo any of the vaunted people in that whole kind of avant-garde scene. And he was technical. You know, he wasn't just... T I think what I love about Eddie Van Halen is that he is responsible for the instrument that he mastered. He didn't take the, the, he didn't take the electric guitar as it was given to him. Yeah, he right. took it and he just saw right through it and put it back... He took it apart and put it back together to suit his needs and to suit the sound and the feel that he wanted. And that whole thing about how he worked with Charvel and was went uncredited and he made his Frankenstrats and stuff, um, that's when I started to call him like a genius. That's when I, I, yeah. I conceded and I said, this guy is a genius. Totally it's genius. not just on based on eruption. Right. I can't call him a genius on eruption, but all the other things that went into making him and all the, I don't know, all the technical stuff he did with the guitar, he, he, there is something to Eddie Van Halen that I think a lot of people have either forgotten about because he went into that whole world of rock mm -hmm. or just never knew about. Like, I didn't know a lot of the things that I read when I read uh, Everybody Wants Some. It, it, there's a little bit of, uh, now thinking about I just think, uh, when I think of Eddie Van Halen, I think of him now, I think of him spending the last 20 plus years kind of just alone in his studio. And uh, that's a shame, right? He didn't really, I don't feel like he had the musical community yeah. that, that, that Roth, look at David Lee Roth, right? He's an egomaniac, but he's a compassionate guy. And uh, like a culture vulture. Yeah. And it, when Van Halen was on the scene, they, they graduated, they weren't playing at the whiskey anymore. But Roth was still at the whiskey. He wanted to, he was sussing out the competition and checking out the headlines, you know, the headline bands. It's X now. It's not, uh, you know, it was, if it was Devo, he'd go see Devo. He 
was got super into X, and so like socially and as a front man, he incorporated all of that yeah. into what he did. But it's much easier. You're not going to hear, um, you know, you're not going to hear Eddie Van Halen in 1984 start to do anything that sounds like LA punk at the time. But Roth could just kind of mingle with those people, go back to his to go back to his job in Van Halen a little bit more well-rounded and, and having that kind of an edge on somebody like Vince Neil, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, Eddie Van Halen, what I've heard in interviews, he doesn't even listen to music anymore. Like, from being in a cover band in the, in the 70s right. to today, he doesn't he even... With his dad, you know, when, when he and Alex were, like, 10 years old. Yeah. Just right. hauling gear. Right. Saturday night gigs at the at the Polish polka house, that kind of thing. And and in Van Halen, you had this kind of paradox where you had this kind of classically trained, you know, v- very s- strict and and as we know now, genius almost uh, kind of personalities, mixed with this kind of Vegas schmaltzy Vegas kind of Holly old Hollywood wannabe would you is that i mean obviously that that mixture helped with making van halen the signature sound that none of the the uh, the people who tried to copy them could even come close to would you agree with that uh i'm not sure exactly well the, the thing that is um they took in the 70s, right, rock and roll was bombastic and bigger than life. And there are a lot of bands that are forgotten today that had outrageous stage shows, yeah. like Angel. You know, they yeah, basically yeah, right. recreated heaven on stage. And uh, even there's that fam- there's a kind of more... It's funny how things today can be more famous than they were back when they were released in total obscurity. But like Stunt Rock, you're familiar with this movie that's... Um, it's uh, an Australian stuntman comes to L.A. Half the film is just his best of stunts, but it, it's outrageous stuff, like cars going off of cliffs in Australia, uh, you know, a mi- half a mile high and bursting into flames. And he teams up with this band called Sorcery. Okay. You know, they're doing like, mag- they have a magician, they're doing magic tricks on stage and stuff. Uh, I feel like that movie is better known today than it probably was in 1980. And, you know, Sorcery, where, where are they? <laughs> Sorcery could still fill. <laughs> Sorcery probably plays bigger shows today than they did back right, then. Right. But uh, so Van Halen, Van Halen was coming out of that, but they in, in con, they kind of brought it back to earth. I mean, it's hard. It's 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 strange. It's strange to put Van Halen in history. If, in a lot of ways, for people you know, our for people like us under fifty, Van Halen is the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. But they also were like. They had the benefit of starting in the 70s. Even though they defined the 80s, mm-hmm. they were running, they were like the rats running with the dinosaurs, you know? Like they played with Aerosmith in their prime, and, uh, you know, they were contemporaries of Led Zeppelin. It's, it's not like, yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of an amazing thing to put the process is that, yeah, the Van Halen you see today that's just playing old songs and totally like, um, uh, representation of a past glory. That band was kind of that band was in existence 40 years ago, yeah. when these guys were basically teenagers. I think a lot of Van Halen's uh, even old followers now who go to the reunion shows and everything, their Van Halen started with Jump, and a lot of those people, just like the Metallica fans, right. they don't go back. 
to you know uh, Van Halen or Van or Fair Warning. They they just keep moving forward, which is maybe why the Sammy records sold more. But there's a whole legion of people who, for them, Van Halen started with Jump, and they never go back. Like. Well, someone told me the other night, because we do a Misfits cover in our set, that Die Die My Darling was voted the number four most popular Metallica <laughs> song. You know, so, you know, that, that makes sense to me that, like, nobody really knows uh, Call of Kitlu or whatever. What song do you cover? Die Die My Darling. Yeah, so maybe Die Die My Darling would be your fourth most, most yeah. popular song somewhere. Sometimes when we do it, I look out in the crowd and I go, you think we're doing a Metallica song, right, don't yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it's really interesting how, you know, history for some people, they just don't, I mean, I don't fault them. They don't have time to, or they don't, they got other things to do to, than to go back and to revisit what happened before they got into something. It's only the people who really get into something that they want to go back. But Van Halen sold 10 million copies of 1984. So... Nine million of those people probably just kept going into 5150 without going to Diver Down? Uh, I don't know that the, as far as albums go, it's hard to say those al- the, the, the Roth albums have sold overall way more than the Sammy albums. The Sammy albums made a bigger chart impact. Like oh, every, every Sammy album went to number one, right. but I don't think that more people today are going to buy... Um, Van, are, are going to buy OU812 instead of Van Halen 1. I don't think. I, I'm not positive. I don't know for sure. But And definitely 1984 is the one that keeps going and going and going. Yeah. I would say the first album is probably number... Number two. Yeah, number two. But, it, you know, it's, it's like ACDC also, right? I mean, for, for a lot of people, it starts with Back in Black, and then, yeah, there was another singer. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, Highway to Hell is a classic. People know that. It's not like an obscure, forgotten right. thing. And I don't think that the early Van Halen is, it, it's not overlooked that much. But yeah, there are people, the, the people who were eight in 1984 are pushing 40 now. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting because I did go to the Van Halen reunion show. And I remember thinking that, like, every, you, you guys probably don't even. No fair warning. Like, you're just waiting for... But they did play all the Roth... They had to play all the Roth stuff. They're not going to... They're not going to play anything off OU812 or F-U-C-K, so... Yeah. But uh, uh, speaking about 1984, that was another thing that I kind of got obsessed about. And I ended up tweeting Wolfgang and Eddie on Twitter. And I know that Eddie doesn't go on Twitter. It's not him handling handling the Twitter. <laughs> I can't see him with a smartphone going, ah, oh, fuck. Right. He's, got like one pink, he's, got, he's playing guitar nonstop and he's got one pinky free to just, you know, <laughs> beep, 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 beep. 140. <laughs> but um, I tweeted them, both of them, and I said, you got to release the entire 30 minutes of 1984. So a lot of people, myself included, I didn't know this until I read your book that 1984, the what minute and a half, two minute little intro to the 1984 album is actually only a little clip of a 30 minute piece that he wrote and no one's heard. Yeah, there's, there's so much of that. And he had a recording unit put into, I think maybe like an early Pro Tools rig or something, put into his bathroom so that when he was sitting on the toilet he was recording himself I mean this guy was like 
out in outer even when he was isolated and out in outer space and super wasted for years mm-hmm. he was recording and, and and I don't think my sense is he can play really well when he's wasted and it's not a yeah you're right. you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's a bunch of nice instrumental stuff that he did for the unofficial sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High Wildlife yeah uh, a couple in the film, there are a couple of s- instrumental songs buried in there. But if you can track down the soundtrack or just the YouTube r- uh, rips of them, there are I think two entire songs, possibly more. And I believe that he scored the whole movie. They're just not on the soundtrack. They're not. They're just. It's just one track that he did. Just one track. I think that opens the soundtrack. The official soundtrack that was released. Okay. I think there's only one song and credited. In the film itself, there are a couple more songs. Yeah, and you can you can hear those on YouTube. Yeah. I don't know how someone got a hold of them, but they did. I remember when I was writing "Everybody Wants Some," I uh, tra- you know I had to buy the VHS of "Wildlife" at that point, and that and, um, and yeah, and it was like forty bucks or something. <laughs> probably <laughs> you know my, the last VHS tape I ever bought. Yeah. And probably the most expensive. And you're probably the last person who bought Wildlife on, on VHS. <laughs> it's probably one of those things that now it's just out, you know. Yeah. But with all the music taken out, like that um, Christy McNichol movie. Uh, Pirate? No, the one where she and Tatum O'Neill are oh, having a... The Little Darlings? Yeah, Little Darlings. Little Darlings. It was like an awesome teen sex movie from like 1981. Where it's a race, a summer camp race to lose virginity, but the soundtrack is just this kick-ass litany of, you know, sticks and cheap trick and stuff, and so the movie was just, like, unavailable for 50 years or whatever. Yeah. Like, Over the Edge, too, the Matt Dillon movie. Right. And, and so, um, there's also another clip that he does in another movie, Back to the Future. Yeah. And there's a scene where uh, I think Michael J. Fox's character puts the headphones on Crispin Glover, and it says Eddie Van Halen on yeah, the cassette. cassette. Right. And I found the actual whole piece on YouTube. I don't know how this was found and uploaded, but it was. What is that all about? Do you know? Um, I think the idea was, I mean, you know, that movie also is from like 1984, right? 1984, 85. So it's right there in the peak of Van Halen's total domination of, uh, next to Michael Jackson domination of the year, really. I don't remember, I'm sorry, I actually don't remember the entire story, but it, I think it's something where he, I mean, that's him playing, and maybe, maybe he was going to be in the movie in some capacity, but, he, but that got scrapped. Yeah, because, you know, if, if he wanted to serve this other side of him without, you know, scaring off his new... 10 million fans, this was an easy way to do it. You know, make soundtrack music. You can get all your weird, weird, kind of weird musical kind of deviations out of you, you know, get it out of you through these soundtracks. But he didn't really pursue that. There's there's also, he he was pretty active. I think he... um, I think he did a little bit of music for a Valerie Bertinelli made for TV movie. Oh. It caused a big schism within the band. And believe he plays on Nicolette Larson's album, which is uh, like a you know, like kind of a 70s disco disco album that she was like pals with, Valerie Bertinelli. Um, 
it's, I don't know, maybe we should, I think maybe we should put the pressure on Wolfgang to start going through those shoe boxes filled with dats and probably half inch tape and the onus is on him and (laughs) I started following him on on Twitter or Instagram because of that Um, but you mentioned the schism in Van Halen Um, obviously it had to be Roth and Eddie we all know that those two guys you know don't always get along all the time but also um, it's Alex and Eddie too isn't it there's like something going on between them. Between them as, as like, a, a schism between them? Yeah, like sometimes when it comes to working outside the band, isn't Alex, doesn't Alex side with David Lee Roth on that? No, no. I, I, well, I, I see it as a pretty solid block with the brothers. Yeah? And that maybe, you know, any schism is made worse because all of a sudden you're up against two. Yeah. You're up against a drummer and a guitarist that have played together since they were eight years old or younger. But isn't there a, some sort of fallout between those two privately? Of course, publicly, they'll make their, you know, they'll present a united front. But privately, have you heard any rumblings that, because, you know, isn't there, in, in the book, I remember when Jan Van Halen died, he made the brothers promise they'd give up drinking and. Alex kept his promise. Oh, okay. Well, in terms of a schism, I think Alex became, you know, somewhat of a family man, and that basically just left Eddie more alone. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. As far as the schism, I don't know. Uh, okay. Well, then, uh, you know, maybe it's just something I'm trying to. No, I, to, I think there might have been more schism if Alex was really on his brother, but I think he was sort of like, hey, you know, he's doing what he wants to do. Right. Um, there were some interventions, but, but then Alex kind of went his own way. Right. Yeah. Would you, would, you, would you compare Eddie to like a Sun Ra type guy? Where, like you say, he's always recording even when he's on the toilet. His output is like kind of endless. And it's all stored away. Like, I, I kind of see him like that, like a Zappa, like a Sun Ra, like one of these kind of, it's just that this whole pop rock, uh, you know, weight that he has to carry, yeah. you know, that, that the cover of 5150, even though You're it's... killing me, though, because, you know, Sun Ra has, the discography, his discography is, because every show is a little bit different, he's almost like the Grateful Dead or something. There are 150 Sun Ra records. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but when you if you, if those fifty one fifty recordings were released, I'm basically trying to give th- the one guy that I grew up with that I loved because of one thing, and as I grew older, I got into something else, and I didn't see him uh, leaving where his spot is, and then suddenly years later, I discover that he was always had that side to him. I'm kind of giving him this, you know, I'm trying to. Put him on that level, and you see. And again, I'm thinking of you know somebody that did, uh, somebody somebody who realized when it was time to pursue their heart in a different way. Mm-hmm. The this thing had run. It's, the '80s had run their course. David Lee Roth went out and started doing everything imaginable. Right? He he cut his hair. He was making like dark, grainy black and white videos. Uh, Trying to make, sing torch songs, country. I think there's a there, he kind of has a dance hall song. 
But it wasn't, and it wasn't in a craven way. It was really like, I'm a man of the world. This is what I hear. Uh, let me love it all and like rub it on my hairy chest and then <laughs> and throw it out back out at you. Right. And I think it's kind of a shame that he wasn't. It, I don't. I don't know. I don't. Wasn't paying any attention in 1982, 1992, when he started doing those things. Uh, you know, when he left the peacock behind, yeah. left the spandex behind, and started like, uh, you know, quietly roaming the streets of New York and right. trying to uh, just be, blend in, and then be that musician, the the older guy that had seen it all and was now um, bringing you back his smoky. Uh, uh, you know his tales from the, his Tom Waits. There, there are all these people that he's. There's a little bit of Willie Nelson in some of his stuff. Um, he got to act it all out, and we know what that. And you have to dig to to find all this stuff, but it's out there. Yeah. And it, it is a shame that we don't know about that with Eddie. We don't. All we know is that for the period that he was active and plugged into the world, he you know he's on this person's record. He he's. Goes down the hall and does a uh, immortal noodly bit on a Michael Jackson recording. Doesn't get paid. Doesn't care. <laughs> is, he was just throwing that shit out. Like that's that's just what he did. Yeah. It just he was shedding it, yeah. shedding rainbows. You know. <laughs> he was just walking down the hall, like noodling constantly, guitar like fused to his fingers, feathered hair blowing in the wind, bandana galloping, uh, bouncing on his uh, bone on his bony collarbone, and and just rainbows were flying off of him and ending up on people's records, and then. He was then he was shut away somewhere for for a few million decades, right. and then he comes back and he just plays Eruption. It's crazy, right? It's it's. it's I, I don't understand what a box modern day Van Halen is in. Yeah, I you know it's kind of like that scene in Usual Suspects at the end of the movie when he figures out that Kevin, what's his face is is Kaiser Soze. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at Eddie Van Halen, this this figure that I've. I've seen my most of my life and I'm looking at him in a different way and I'm just going <clears throat> the whole world should know that this guy is more than you know kind of just a a shadow of what you know people think he's just a shadow of his former self kind of wooden right yeah and almost you know playing himself you know like playing the part of Eddie Van Halen now, rather than just being Eddie Van Halen, who I see and you see as like someone who's way more than just eruption. And, uh, yeah, I, it's why I reached out to you. I wanted to make sure that <laughs> I, I'm not the only one. Yeah, not, no, I mean, I wrote this book about them, you know, and, I, and I, it, like layers were revealed to me, and I'm like, wow, he did that? This happened? And, right. Um, the, the Marvin Hamlish thing is a huge, is a huge question. Where's, where's the huge. rest of that tape? And it's got, he's just inherently so musical that he's just really throwing, he's super wasted throwing coins and batteries on a, on a baby grand piano. And it sounds intriguing and it's interesting. And then the fact that he also knows how to change the instrument to make it do what he wants. He built his own recording studio and tweaked that. I mean, I can understand how owning a recording studio puts you in a, in a never-ending, you never are going to have it in full repair doing exactly what you want. And I hope that's not the molasses, that's not the quicksand he's been swimming in for 20 years, because that just sucks, right? 
There's that, there's that one video, I'm sure you've seen it on YouTube, called Catherine, which was shot by Michael Nin, and it's right. shot at 5150, right. so it gave me the first real look of the studio, but it's just Eddie Van Halen by himself, drinking wine, yeah. playing all the instruments, and yeah. you know he's in ha like just this weird, crazy world. It's like he made some new friends. They're like, "Oh, this is what you do this is what you've been doing." Yeah, really, right? Yeah, I got that feeling too. Like the porn people. Like, right? oh, okay, come on in. Like, oh, this is pretty cool. Do you mind? You know, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's all it took. Somebody just needed to like tap him on the shoulder and say, "Hey, come on." And that used to be Alex, and then it was Roth, but Roth couldn't take it anymore. Then it was Hagar, and then you know Hagar like was off doing Hagar things. Yeah. And then then it was him. And then he was by himself, and um, uh, yeah. Now it's going to be you, Wolfie. <laughs> now it's got to be. Now I'm realizing how much pressure is on Wolfie. Well, you know, I, I saw an interview with Wolfgang, and he did say that one of his favorite bands was Tool. So he's kind of on the right track. I mean, in terms of getting into the weird stuff, yeah. just keep going. Just don't, just keep going, and then maybe you'll stumble on your dad's recordings and realize that you were sitting next to it all this time. Yeah, maybe someone will play you John Cage, and you'll say, "Wait a minute, wait." My dad used to do stuff like that. Like, no, no, you got it all wrong. Your dad was in Van Halen. He didn't sound. Like, I'm pretty sure they didn't sound like this. Oh no. <laughs> Exactly. I think this is a cover of my dad's. We've got like a, we have a giant stack of half-inch tapes of songs that sound just like this. We use it to uh, <laughs> press. We use it to press tortillas. <laughs> exactly. You know that's probably what's happening too, which is just like I can just only imagine what's going on. But yeah, I I I uh, uh, I feel that you know if, if there's anyone around him that could actually bridge it for him and make him come around is actually Roth. Like you were saying, like a man of the world, culture, you know, he just ingests culture and wants to be on the cutting edge of everything. What's more cutting edge than the shit that Eddie was doing? But for, what, a decade and a half, he was... This, uh, partnered up with Sammy Hagar, who is the complete <laughs> opposite of you know all that stuff. You know, at least at least Roth, I could see him kind of being open to it. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I mean, you know, you know what happened. I love that in the modern era, right? This is like two or three years ago. Van Halen got back together and they started playing shows. They had a bunch of, they had a lot of problems with consistency, making the dates, and. They, they booked four me mega shows in Japan. Months in advance of this, Roth goes to Tokyo, gets an apartment, and starts spending all of his time studying swordplay and full immersion Japanese lessons. The shows all got canceled. <laughs> so <laughs> then he's just there in an apartment. He stayed there for two more years. Yeah. And then started making like a film, yeah. doing YouTube clips from the balcony of his apartment at like, you know, four in the morning Tokyo time because he never adjusted to the local time zone. <laughs> it's amazing. The amazing guy. Yeah. Roth is like a. I've seen that. He did this whole little short film on his Roth podcast, video podcast. Yeah. And he like takes out all these like Yakuza type looking dudes or whatever. For, but for a guy who's been studying swordplay for, you, you know, since 1984 at least, I don't understand why he had to have a gun in his 
Why was he shooting? Where's the? Come on, man. Let's see. <laughs> let's hear some. Let's see some ears and noses go flying. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's. Uh, I mean, he, Roth can be. We could talk about Roth for two yeah. podcasts, yeah. you know. But we, we'll meet up in uh, Sri Lanka and talk about <laughs> Roth. Exactly. Yeah. Because then he got into Israeli sniper. There are these really long sniper rifles that can shoot about 30 miles. Wow. And somehow he got into that. So, and then he was training. Then he was um, training sheep herding dogs. Yeah, I've seen those <laughs> all those dogs in his videos sometimes in the podcast. <laughs> I mean, he's a fascinating guy. I mean, I think that's the thing about it is for all the time me and friends would get together and talk about Van Halen or the subject came up, it would always revolve around Roth, how, how we all wanted to hang out with Roth, how he's the coolest interview, how he says all the great punchlines. Right. And it's just, he's the guy you want to be around. He's the life of the party. Yeah, Eddie, he's like, he's, ah, he can play a wicked guitar <laughs> solo. Yeah, whatever. But now, for me, it's slowly turning around and I'm starting to realize like, holy fuck, like Eddie Van Halen. And that's, a th and you know, the reason why I can identify with it is because, you know, a lot of people see us one way. Especially back home, we're a pop rock band on the radio because our songs get play on the radio. And, oh, you're just this pop rock band. And, like, you know, we got here. I read about it on social media. People say this about our band. And that's not where we're from. You know, we're from this kind of punk, we have a punk rock background. I was a heavy metal kid. I, and then of course you're gonna get tired of that and you're gonna move on, but you're not gonna go in, in the pop rock direction. You're gonna go in the other, uh, other, the other way and try and find weirder sounds and crazier way, uh, bands. But I'm not gonna put it on an album. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm, I, so I know that kind of crisis that Eddie Van Halen was under. And then when I heard that strung out track, after I read that article, because to be honest with you, I, I got off the Van Halen train after 5150. Mm -hmm. But when I went back and I listened to that strung out track, I was just, everything just opened up for me. And I was like, I, I, I think I emailed you about a couple of days after I'd been obsessing about it and going, oh, what the fuck? I, you know, and then I was like, Ian, Ian, what the fuck? <laughs> and that's like, he'll know. No, I mean, I, I really, I, I tried, I, I wrote that book partially, it was right after my mom died, right? And after I left home, my mom became a serious, obsessed Queen fan. Um, like, you know, hundreds of videotapes and, and albums and things. And, and when she passed away in 2006, Brian May said, you know, we've lost like a family member. And uh, um, I, I really could see what she got out of Queen. I thought it was, it was strange because it wasn't like, it wasn't anything like what she had done raising me. But I guess she had her hands full and was busy, right. you know, raising my, my sister and I. But uh, I guess that's, to me, Van Halen was as close as I could understand that, and it was part of the grieving process for me. So I went, I, but I also loved Van Halen and thought that they were overlooked at that time. People had started to forget about them. Right. Unlike Aerosmith, they didn't, they hadn't like gone through a, a, a 90s pop period, and you know, unlike Led Zeppelin, they, they didn't quit and become legends. Um, so I, I went into it kind of open with open heart and open mind, and I just kept finding all these interesting things. And 
the state of the band was terrible when I was, they, they hadn't reunited, they were inaccessible. I just kept pounding on doors and it was so frustrating. But um, every little like, every little revelation like, you know, the Marvin Hamlish stories and um, ta uh, Broth talking about going to Haiti and seeing, you know, being a party boy, like, oh, this is just wild, we're gonna, I'm going to have a wild time down there. It goes down and just sees, like, grinding poverty and people, you know, eating mud. And that came, came back and that kind of became the darker uh, Fair Warning album. All of these little things, like, really made me appreciate the band in all of these... All of these... They, they were not ever really as career-oriented as other bands around them. Uh, it, was, it was like, yes, everything was for the career, but there was just so much else going on in, in Van Halen's world. And I, I don't know, I wanted to turn that inside out, expose it to the world, remind people that they had existed. And then they just reunited, <laughs> like the day that the book came out. Wow. So, you know, since then, at least they have a placeholder playing their hits, in Madison Square Garden once a year. And, um, yeah. you know, people say, well, I like, ah, yeah, I've seen Van Halen. I don't see what the big deal is. But, you know, you see these, these videos and the things that they pulled off culturally, uh, it wasn't just, here's your rock show. They were always testing that and trying to figure out what that was. So, part, so one of these super interesting things is, uh, I, made a, I, made, I made an iTunes playlist of, Van Halen instrumentals, and they're all these one and two minute long bits on almost every album, even Eruption. When, like, Eruption is a tightly composed little piece. When I was a kid, I always thought that it was probably, like, you know, they turn on the tape machine, they turn it off. And that, that is what they did, but that is a tightly composed piece. It's not just a, it's not just a fluid thing, but many of the other instrumentals are. He was just going on, going and going and going. They took a minute. What? Which one? Well, like Cathedral, you know, the little the volume swells, and um, uh, like you said, 1984, the the synth the synth intro to the 1984 album, when he just has like two analog, two, you know, two Oberheims just. How many hours and hours and hours of that is is there? And he's a piano player, so he knew what to do with synthesizers. He he understood. He understood electronics. Yeah. He understood what an analog synthesizer could do, and he knew how to how to play the piano. So, it sounds you know uh, uh, credible. It's real. It's not dinky dinky do. It's. So, are you saying that uh, Cathedral is is just a snippet like 1984 of a bigger piece? I think it's well. I, I can't say that for sure because he has put Cathedral together with Eruption in so many cans, guitar solos, live. Uh -huh. but, but I think it's just an example of things that he was just throwing out there. You know, there's that song Ripley. That's just a, I think that is another um, uh, wildlife song. That's him doing a further experiment with that Ripley guitar where I, it's either, it might be a 12 string, but definitely you can pan every string. <laughs> so, so like, he's just playing this guitar where it, I, it's an insane invention in the first place, right? A guitar where the top string is in your right ear and the bottom string is in your left ear. Wow. Or yeah. Wow. They're just where he was intrigued and you know turned on by technology and diving into it and just constantly trying to break stuff and make sounds. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's funny how someone who's so prolific with music, as you're saying, constantly recording, constantly writing, they're one of the only bands that I know that just keep going back to shit they wrote 25, 30 years ago and putting it out now. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you were really, you just keep putting out what you just wrote last week, even with A Different Kind of Truth, those songs, I heard about A Different Kind of Truth back in 2010, two yeah. years before it was released. Someone in close to their camp told me and JC are in our band that Van Halen are in the studio right now right, using uh, ideas from back in the day with Roth and Ted Templeman and if Eddie Van Halen couldn't get the solo in three tries, they trashed the idea and moved on. They're using those ideas for the new album. And I didn't want to say anything, but I, I felt like telling the guy, I've heard that story before, that they're back together. But <laughs> yeah. two, true enough, two years later, a different kind of truth is out. Yeah. And the songs, the songs are exactly sounding like that era. Like, and of course, people said that those were old ideas. Yeah. But Eddie Van Halen's so prolific, so prolific. What, you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. It's just so fucking weird, man. To me, it's just weird. And there's all, a lot of that early stuff, it sounds even more like what people were doing in the 80s. And you know all these guys like George Lynch were there. You know, George Lynch had a more popular band than Van Halen at the, in, in, in like 1977. And uh, um, that's right. All of those guys were all mixed up together. And there's just, there's all this stuff like, you know, We Die Bold, that's like a. Total 1984 Dawkins or Motley Crue kind of metal cruncher song, and that, that by even by the time the first album came out, Van Halen wasn't too deep into that. The first album is not about all that. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating band. You know, a lot of what's contributed to the the I'd say in the last ten years, the the hype of Guns N' Roses is the is Axl Rose as a personality. And I think Rolling Stone wrote some sort of piece that really start, triggered it, which is Axl Rose is the most mysterious phantom person in <laughs> rock and roll. But I'm I think- I'm glad it, I don't have that personality. I think, like he just, he basically stayed away from the spotlight for years and years and years and then came out in, I can't remember the year, 02 or something with a new refurbished GNR. But I think Eddie Van Halen is actually the most mysterious character in rock and roll history. Now that all this has come to sort of come to light, and from what you've written, and he's definitely one of a handful of the most important for sure. Hendrix, Hendrix, most mysterious. It's funny that Hendrix and Van Halen don't. There's almost no inter intersection, but I, I feel like Hendrix is the same way. Just a guy with, and I know very little about him except that every time you hear a recording of him, it's just endless flow. Yeah. Endless flow. It's just, he's in there. It's like that guitar is like the third, the guitar's not even the first thing on his mind. It's just in the way between whatever's going on in his right. cerebral cortex and the speakers. It's. But I love the, how tortured Eddie Van Halen is. Or maybe I'm putting it on him, but I feel, I think, that he is kind of tortured trying to serve two masters. This classical side, which is overlooked, you know, the shadow of his father, and the legions of fans that he was able to get, and what they really want, which is why A Different Kind of Truth came out in 2012. I love that album. I love it. 
But I would love it more if he released that piano record. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you seen the, the patent that he filed? Somebody was going to fund him. Somebody was going to bankroll him to mass produce his own um, little shelf. A, a shelf that holds your guitar horizontal right. so that you can finger tap with two fingers, right. with two hands. No, I haven't seen that. Then there's a patent application that has a drawing, a sketch of someone roughly, Van, <laughs> roughly Eddie Van Halen, right. and shape, and you know every little point of it that is uh, unique. I think it's his drawing, but it, it, it's his crazy idea. There was a period where he was where he did have a fold-out stand-up on the back of his guitar to do that, to well, play that way. Yeah, there's live live photos of that as well, right? So he was planning on patenting that and selling it as a guitar accessory. <laughs> First, st step one, get as good as me. <laughs> step two, use this little device. So basically, I don't know, seven people would buy it? <laughs> it's kind of deterrent. I mean, I think at the height of his powers, a million people would have bought them, yeah. and, then, and then what? Yeah. <laughs> well, I use it to hold the door open. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's supposed to be for guitar. You can tilt your amp back a little bit with it. Yeah. We've it's, talked more about we've talked more about the un, the unknown secret treasures of Eddie Van Halen than he's probably thought about it himself <laughs> in well, in a decade. I'd love for this to tr kickstart some sort of discussion that will hopefully you know get the ear of Eddie Van Halen and maybe one day this shit will be released. I mean, uh, I mean, it would be amazing. And it would be justification, you know, that I could hold against all the people who kind of make fun of Van Halen or just the idea of, of the band or what they stand for and turn it on its head. But I, I, the, the real early spark of not even thinking, way before doing this book, um, I had started thinking about Van Halen again in the 2000s after really not listening to them since 1984, I guess. Uh, it was interviewing Trey Azagthoff from Morbid Angel for Sound of the Beast. And he uh, basically can talk for hours at a time without breathe, like circular breathing technique talk. And one of the thing, one of his favorite subjects is Eddie Van Halen. And uh, it kind of like opened my eyes to, um, you know, to pull the veil off of why Eddie Van Halen is so important. And, and definitely, you know, that he's, he's the most fluid and prolific death metal guitarist. Um, and, or, you know, Trey Azekthoff from Morbid Angel is a, a legitimate guitar hero. And I hadn't even heard anyone say Eddie Van Halen's name in 20 years, probably. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> of course it's Eddie Van Halen. But th that's why it stuck out to me that, you know, to reach out to you, because I'm sure you had the same thoughts as me, because you're putting out these books like Celtic Frost, Touch and Go, uh, New York Hardcore, uh, Andy McCoy, and there is a bridge, and, and then, you, then you have this, you've authored this book on Van Halen, that's, but you put out all these other kinds of books. It's, it's, just, it's just something that was just too noticeable not to like reach out to you and talk to you about Van Halen, especially now. What is it? Six years after you, seven years after the book has come out. At least, yeah. Yeah, so it's nice to go back and talk about it. Van Halen are still in the news, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel appearance, and you know, every now and then you hear something about Eddie and, and David, but it's not in the forefront of the news. But yeah, it's always good to touch. But for me personally, it's only now that I've suddenly realized that Eddie Van Halen is more than I thought he was, you know. So I had to reach out to you, so. Well, thanks.
Well, thanks, man. Thank you. Ian, thank you. 